this series called Superman, what we're trying to do is familiarize folks with Jesus, maybe in ways you haven't been familiarized with him, right? So even if you've known Jesus or you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe I'm going to offer some different kinds of insights that uh, deepen that for you. Some of you I know are just are not really with it, like in a religious way, and you've never really been close to Jesus, and people that say they're close to Jesus kind of weird you out, you know, you don't want to be like them, and I get it. Um, but I do hope to familiarize you some with this man. Because we've kind of done something to Jesus, right? We have over, over the years, we've kind of uh, overly sentimentalized him or we've kind of overly, I don't know what the word is, just sanctified him. Like we only see him as a divine creature and not so much as a man with real human qualities and traits and characteristics. And I want you to get to know those characteristics of the man Jesus um, because I think the more you know about Jesus, the closer your relationship can be with him, or at least, at a minimum, the more informed you'll be to make a decision about what to do about this man Jesus in your own life, and your own faith. So we know there really was a guy, there really was a man who walked on this earth in the first century in Palestine named Jesus, and he was probably olive-skinned or brown-skinned, and he was definitely a refugee, and he, uh, you know, was constantly on the run, and uh, his whole life was spent, you know, as a hunted man, that kind of a thing. But we've kind of boiled him down into this whole different thing, right? So we've kind of made him in our art and in our movies kind of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed. I, I mentioned hipster Jesus a couple weeks ago. That kind of like philosophical kind of guy who's like the soft-spoken and introspective and, you know, kind of a wimp, you know. And, and he, he takes his coffee with like cream and some splendors. I don't know. But like Jesus, I'm pretty sure Jesus took his coffee black. He's just that kind of a guy, you know. Like because if you really... I'm, it's not who I want him to be. Is that the guy who jumps off the pages of the Gospels was that kind of a person. He was a real red-blooded kind of a, a man who had a family and he made a living and he worked hard and he knew hunger and he, uh, he, he often felt the same kinds of frustrations and struggles that, that um, we feel today. Um, I found this quote from John Eldridge uh, from a book uh, called Beautiful Outlaw where he says, we project into the gospel stories a pastoral backdrop. That's not like pastor, pastoral. It's like a country landscape, right, backdrop. The quaint charm of a Middle Eastern travel brochure, picturesque villages, bustling markets, smiling children, and Jesus wandering through it all like a son come home from college. That is, I'm afraid, uh, too similar to uh, how we actually do look at Jesus when we think about or imagine what his life was like. But that was not his reality. So I want us, as much as possible, to kind of erase some of those things we've been conditioned to think about Jesus and reimagine who he really was based on what we really know about him from his context, right? And so uh, and really get to know his reality, which was much more severe, than the boy coming home from college. Much more severe. From the time he was two years old, he was a political refugee on the run. The powers that be wanted to take him out. When he was two, Herod ordered the massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem. And they fled, right, to Egypt. And his life was in danger from that point on. We know that his cousin and one of his closest friends, who was his partner in ministry, for much of his ministry, John the Baptist, the one who baptized Jesus, he ended up with his head on a platter. And it devastated Jesus. But that death that John died paled in comparison to what awaited Jesus in Jerusalem. And Jesus knew that too. Constantly talked about Jerusalem being the place where they were going to kill him. And, and, and you know, this was, uh, was Jesus' reality. 
And so that soft-spoken, uh, frail, philosophical hipster Jesus just doesn't line up with the Jesus we find in the Gospels. Because if anything, Jesus was intense. He was a, a visceral, kinetic, intense, sort of a, a muscular even kind of a figure. He was a construction guy. He was an intense person to be around. If he walked in a room, you knew it. And so I was uh, reading this week a business journal, an article about the 15 most intense people in the business world. <clears throat> and many of them reminded me of some of, char of the character traits we find in, in Jesus in the Gospels. Right? This kind of idea that you don't, you don't care as much about people's feelings as you do about the mission you're on. Like when Jesus calls Peter Satan, he says, get behind me, Satan. And Peter's like, what, what did I do? Why do you call me Satan, Jesus? And it's because Jesus cares more about his purpose and his mission than the feelings of those around him. And then I read about the editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine, uh, what's her, uh, Winter. They call her uh, Nuclear Winter uh, because of how she is with her closest people, right? And it kind of made me think about that intensity, that drive. And then it uh, talked about Michael Jordan, who I grew up watching play basketball. And, and I know it's a little bit of a cliche to say Jesus is Michael Jordan. But I, I want to talk about his intensity, right? Because Jordan was an intense basketball uh, player, right? One of the most intense to ever play the game. Um, and it was in his eyes. He said that I can own my opponent just by looking at him. He had this look of intimidation in his eyes. I got to watch Jordan play once in person at Reunion Arena in Dallas in 1993. And uh, the Mavericks that year were the worst team in the league. They were 11 and 71 by the end of that season. I didn't even know it was possible. That was, that was at that time the third worst season that any team had ever had in NBA history. <clears throat> And the Bulls, of course, were the best team in the 90s. They won the championship uh, that season. And uh, so there the Bulls were coming to play the Mavericks. I did not go to that reunion arena that night to see the Mavericks. I didn't know any of their players, and no one did. Uh, the, the reason I went there and the reason I showed up early was because of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And Horace Grant, who wore glasses, and I wore glasses, so I thought, that's cool. I, maybe I'll be in the NBA one day, is what I told myself. And, uh, <laughs> and so I got there early, and half the arena was full early because it was his only trip to Dallas that year. And, uh, and, and so we wanted to see Jordan maybe show off a little bit. You know, maybe if we get there early during warm-ups, he'll do some crazy stuff to entertain the fans. You know, maybe if enough of us show up and, and hoop and holler, like, maybe he'll do that dunk from the free throw line, you know, that he was so famous for. And he went to the free throw line, but not to dunk. An hour before the game, the greatest player who ever played the game, just, uh, you know, an hour before a game with the worst team in the league, uh, stood there on the free throw line for 45 minutes and shot one free throw after another. Just one after another. He played the game his whole life, the greatest of all time. He's got adoring fans just begging him to dunk once so we can tell our grandkids we saw Michael Jordan dunk, you know, that kind of a thing. But he, he's not worried about us. He's not worried about entertaining anyone else. He's not worried about how great he is. He stands on the free throw line and shoots free throws. He must have shot a thousand free throws for 45 Minutes And it really made an impression on me. On the one hand, I was really disappointed. I get to see, you know, Michael Jordan show off. But the fact that the greatest of all time would stand on the free throw stripe and just shoot free throws for that amount of time, it really struck me. And clearly, the, all the practice paid off, right? So he could, uh, he, he had, at the end of his career, he had an 84% 
career free throw percentage, which placed him in the top 100 players all time. Pretty good free throw percentage. He was even so good at shooting free throws that he even did this once in a game. Check it out. In case you missed that, he closed his eyes and made the second free throw with his eyes closed. That's how adept he was at making free throws. That's what shooting a thousand free throws before every single game, no matter how meaningless that game is or how, how awful the opponent is, will get you. Is uh, You'll be able to make free throws with your eyes closed. And that's what Jordan was able to do because of his intensity. <clears throat> because of his intensity, he was able to reach those kinds of uh, heights. And that's kind of how I picture uh, Jesus, when we talk about Jesus, is that level of intensity. Intensity to the point of total dedication. Intensity to the point of intimidation. And there's no question that this is what got Jesus killed. Okay? So, if you've ever wondered why they put him on the cross, it's because he was intimidating to the wrong people. If Jesus hadn't been intimidating, if he'd just been a really good teacher or a really smart guy, that soft-spoken guy we kind of think he is, they never would have killed him. They would have made fun of him or ostracized him maybe or accepted him. But they never would have killed him. The reason they killed him is because he scared them. He threatened their power because he was an intimidating figure. And Jesus had that same kind of presence. He could make the most powerful people crumble in his presence by just looking at them. He had that kind of intensity in his eyes. And he had that kind of ability when he looked at, at, at people. And, and uh, you know, I think, uh, I think that's the uh, thing I'd like to explore today. I want to I look at the development or the evolution of Jesus' intensity through five scenes in his life. So this is going to be a little different from this point on, a little different from the normal sermon. We're going to look at five scenes or five chapters from Jesus' story and look at the intensity of Jesus through every one. So you have uh, some study guides. Those might come in handy today more than usual. If you want to use those, you can pull those out and uh, follow along with these five different scenes. Excuse me. <clears throat> All right. So the first scene I want to talk about with Jesus' intensity is actually before he's even born. Because I think the story of the intensity of Christ begins before his conception. Because I think Jesus got some of his intensity from his mama. And I'm going to explain and talk a lot about Mary today because I think Mary is, uh, is underestimated by many of us today. We, we are introduced to Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke chapter 1. Mary was a young girl from a small town. We think she was 13 or so years old. If you're 13, just imagine going through what I'm about to tell you about Mary. If you know a 13-year-old, think of her as we're talking about Mary and kind of realize how crazy God's plan must have been to include or actually put at the center of his plan someone like Mary, a 13-year-old girl. And now Mary is visited by an angel sort of at an un unexpected time. I guess it's never an expected time to be visited by an angel, but she is initially surprised, right? She is uh, understandably shocked. As many of us would be, she's even afraid. But by the end of her exchange with the angel, something has happened to Mary. She has found something in herself because she begins with shock and fear. By the end of this conversation with the angel, she is composed and confident and collected and ready. 
And it's not that the angel said anything that calmed her down. The angel gave her a lot of crazy news about how her, all of her life was about to change. The angel's like, hey, Mary, you are going to get pregnant before you're married. And Mary's like, okay, tell me more. And the angel's like, uh, the angel's like oh, and, and Joseph, your, uh, your fiancé, he's not the father. And, uh, and, and, oh, by the way, everyone's going to call you promiscuous for the rest of your life. And Mary's like, all right. And, and by the way, Mary, uh, everybody's going to call your son illegitimate. And Mary's like, okay, tell me more. And then the angel's like, look, uh, this child, uh, the father, it's, it's uh, well, Mary, it's God. And, uh, and, and the, the child is the savior, you know, the savior of the world. And you're responsible for the savior of the world now. And so by this time, you would think that this 13-year-old girl's head would just be spinning, like, what kind of a nightmare is this? My whole life is ruined. I'll never have a normal life. But by the end of it, all Mary says is, fine. Fine. Let's do this and let's do it now, she says. There's an immediacy to Mary at this point. She finds some strength within her. There is this intensity in Mary's eyes. And we know this because the very next line after the angel says all this stuff to her is, let it be done to me. Let your will be done to me. I'm excited. Let's go. It is go time. And she, she does this in the very next line. After she says, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's go time, she says, it says that she hurried away. She, uh, where are we here? At that time, Mary got ready. So there's three things at this line. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to the hills of Judea to where Elizabeth and Zechariah lived, right? So three things real quick about this exchange. Such an important line. First of all, at that time, at that time. Which means that Mary did not hesitate. Mary did not wait. Mary did not break the news to mom and dad. Mary did not go tell Joseph. Mary did not expect anyone's sympathy or a baby shower or any of the stuff you might have normally gotten with a pregnancy. She did not wait one more day in Nazareth. At that time, she hurried off, it says. A 13-year-old girl, pregnant, and now a runaway, on her own, traveling through the hills of Judea. That's the second thing about this line, that she goes to the hills of Judea where uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah lived. Now, that, that was a six-day hike through some treacherous terrain, some dangerous parts. And Mary's doing this, 13 years old, alone, pregnant in her first trimester, ladies, which I've heard is just the worst. I can't speak to that, but it sounds awful. And she's by herself, and she's carrying the weight of the world literally inside of her. And she's probably nauseous half the time while she does it. She hurries off to the hills of Judea, and she goes to be with Elizabeth. And that's the third most important thing is that she was intense, but Mary knew she needed the sympathetic ear of someone who understood. And Elizabeth as the angel told Mary, had been miraculously uh, become pregnant uh, as well. So she went to be with Elizabeth, someone who could sympathize with what she was going through. Now, sometimes, sometimes when we picture Mary, we do the same thing we do with Jesus. We over-sentimentalize Mary. 
we make her into something we want her to be. So we make her serene and kind of a soft-spoken, submissive girl or young woman, kind of a fair, kind of a, a you know, composed young woman who's, who's just kind of, uh, you know, submissive and always, uh, all the time. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that's Mary's reality. I'm not sure Mary was so meek and mild based on the girl we're introduced to in the Gospels, the girl who gets up and runs away in the middle of the night on her own through the hills of Judea at 13 in her first trimester with God's child inside of her. When I look at Mary, I see a savage. She was a savage. It's a savage little girl, man. Don't mess with this girl. Like, you know, I think when we, when we hear Mary's voice, when she says, I'm the Lord's servant, what she says is, I'm ready, let's go. I volunteer as tribute. You should see less of this and more of this when you think of Mary. She is freaking Katniss Everdeen. She is ready to take the world by storm. She doesn't care if it means her life. She doesn't care. She's ready. Let's go. It's go time. She says, I'm not waiting. Let's go right now. When do we start? That's Mary. Courageous and intense. That's Mary. When you think of Mary, you should see that same intensity in her eyes that you think of with other intense people that you know. Maybe the intensity of Jesus even. You should see in Mary's eyes. And sometimes, sometimes Mary was so intense even that she was too much for Jesus to handle. Sometimes, did you know this? Sometimes Mary's intensity was so powerful that it overpowered Jesus' intensity. We find this example in John chapter 2, which is a famous story of Jesus' miracle, right? So his first miracle, I mean, the turning of the water into wine. Um, there was this horrible thing that had happened at this wedding that they were at where the hosts ran out of wine, which is a terrible thing to happen at a wedding back then. It was like this horrible tragedy. It was an insult. And <clears throat> maybe you feel the same way if you go to a wedding and they run out of wine. I don't know. But the same, you know, this thing was happening. And, and Mary felt bad for the hosts of the wedding. And so uh, Mary goes to Jesus when the wine's gone. She says, they have no more wine. So she's saying, son, it's time to do something about this, which makes me think that maybe Jesus had done this trick for Mary at home or something, which makes me respect Mary even more. I don't know why, but Jesus is like, she expects him to do it. They have no more wine. Do something. And Jesus says to his mother, why do you involve me, woman? I'm going to stop right there. And ask you a question. How many of you have ever in a public place in front of a whole bunch of people called your own mother woman? The answer is zero. Because everybody that's ever done that is dead. Because <laughs> their mama killed them. And Mary didn't kill Jesus, but she did something. Something happened. Something happened in the next part of this passage that you have to read really close you really have to read close to see it. Check it out. John chapter 2, verse 4 to 7. Read close. Why do you involve me, woman? My hour has not yet come. And then his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars. And Jesus said to the servants, fill those jars with water. So this storyline doesn't make sense, does it? Jesus is very clear. He is not about to fix this wine problem. And Mary asks him, you know, to fix it. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do it. And then from one verse to the next, Jesus is suddenly doing exactly what Mary told him to do in the beginning. But there's no reason in the story for this to happen. Jesus, uh, Mary doesn't say anything, but Mary does something. And we can't be real clear on this, but clearly something nonverbal happens between Mary and Jesus. I cannot I cannot imagine anything other than Mary giving her son the look. 
You know the look? The look that a mother gives her son when he's being an idiot. You know, the look, the I can't wait to get you home and you are going to regret calling me woman forever. You know, like that kind of a just an intense just... You know, this is a look, and daddies can do it too, you know. And what's crazy is when you become a parent, you realize you have that ability now. You can do the look. It's the craziest thing. But it brings about the change that you want in your child. I think that's what happens. With Mary and Joseph, I think intense Mary gives Jesus a look, and suddenly he's up doing what she asked him to do from the beginning. Now, I, I believe Jesus inherited some of his intensity from this woman his mother, Mary. Because Jesus had the same ability to hold a room. When Jesus entered the room, everyone paid attention. When Jesus entered the room, the powerful people felt threatened. And that's what bothered the Pharisees so much about Jesus to the point that they hunted him. So whenever you read the Gospels, guys, whenever you read the Gospels, you must read it through the lens of a hunted man. Everything you hear Jesus saying and doing, everywhere you see him going, you must understand there are people at his heels wanting to arrest and kill him constantly. There's all kinds of examples in uh, the Gospels about this from John, uh, for example, chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea, where Jerusalem was, because the Jews, I want to be real clear, that's the Jewish leadership, a very small minority of the Jewish population. The Pharisees were seeking to kill Jesus. And then again, in a few chapters later in John chapter 10, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And this is so common in the Gospels, again and again, where Jesus is clearly a hunted man on the run from the authorities. And what the worst part is, is that the people who hunted him the most should have been the ones helping him the most. Because while Jesus was their enemy, they weren't Jesus' enemies. Jesus didn't come all the way from heaven to contend with some spoiled, you know, self-righteous Pharisees. He came all the way from heaven to go to war with sin and death. He came all the way from heaven to bring, you know, salvation, to bring a light to the darkness. And that should have been the same goal that the religious leaders had, should it not? But they were the ones who fought against him. And so not only did Jesus have to battle the devil, he had to deal with all these Religious people, too. Not only did he have to, like, fight sin and death, he had to put up with, you know, Pharisees. And it's awful when it happens, but it happens all the time. Maybe some of you have had the same kind of experience where you know God is calling you to go to war and fight the demons that have hounded you forever. And the people that say they love you the most are the ones that support you the least in that fight. They almost want you to stay right there in the devil's grip. And if that's where you've been, man, Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. Because he not only had to deal with, you know, this battle against darkness, he had to deal with people that should have been fighting it with him, constantly hunting him and trying to take him out. Now, Jesus escaped their grasp long enough, just long enough, to share the gospel with just enough people so that he could continue after he was gone. And then it says in Luke chapter 9, Jesus resolutely set his eyes toward Jerusalem. Resolutely, Jesus set his eyes toward Jerusalem. He knew what was going to happen there. He constantly told the disciples to get ready. When we go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. And, and that's why Peter says, hey, uh, we're not going to let that happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's when that exchange happens and because he's preparing them for what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He knows what's awaiting him there. 
And so when Jesus mounts that donkey and rides into town, what Jesus is saying is, here I am, take me, it's time, go ahead. Go ahead. I surrender to whatever it is you've been trying to do to me all this time. Come and get me. But here's the thing about cowards, and you need to keep this in mind in terms of the cowards in your life. Cowards don't know what to do with intensity. When you have the intensity of Jesus in your life, in your eyes, darkness shudders in your presence. It just doesn't know what to do with you. It's afraid of you. It'll still talk bad behind your back and make you feel, try to feel bad about yourself. It'll still try to take you out, but never directly. And that's what these cowards, these Pharisees did. Because you see, the Pharisees were the ones that were upset with Jesus, but the Pharisees aren't the ones who killed Jesus. Have you ever noticed? The Pharisees are the ones that wanted Jesus dead, but they're not the ones that put him in the grave. The Romans put Jesus in the grave. How did that happen? You ever wondered what Jesus got charged with? What bothered the Pharisees about Jesus was his heresy, they said, that he said he was the son of God. The Romans didn't care if Jesus thought he was the son of God. But the Pharisees were afraid to touch Jesus. His intensity was too much for them to handle, so they needed to run an end around with Jesus. And so instead of, you know, arresting him themselves locally for his heresy, they go to the Romans and say, this guy called himself a king, and we, we have no king but Caesar. And so they were able to have him charged with sedition, with treason, which was punishable by death. That's that's how cowards respond in the face of intensity. That's exactly what the intensity of Jesus did to his cowardly opponents. And then, and then we have maybe the most important event in history to this point. They arrest Jesus. And they strip him naked, and they blindfold him, and they punch him in the face, and they laugh at him, and then they kick him, spit on him. They whip him with a whip that's laced with shards of glass and bone that tear the flesh off his body. By the time they put the cross on his back, Jesus was already half dead. When he came to carry his cross through the city of Jerusalem people, no doubt, shouted at him and made fun of him. When they got outside the gates, they secured Jesus to the cross with nails through his wrists, through his ankles. It's, uh, I never get over the fact that he never fought back. As intensity was, he knew how to channel his intensity in the right way. And all he said was, God, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. I need you to know what this next scene was like. Because it's all building to this point. In John chapter 19, Jesus has carried his cross outside the city gates. But I need you to know how this happened because this is important and we got it wrong. Like in, our, in your memory, you don't remember, you don't think of crucifixion in an accurate way probably. It's not your fault. It's just how we've thought of it, right? So when Jesus is carrying his cross, it wasn't the whole like cross that he carried. It was just the horizontal cross beam. And here's why. Crucifixion was an everyday reality in the Roman Empire. 
and the Romans, there wasn't enough wood to give every single criminal his own cross. And so the Romans would recycle those vertical posts and they stayed in the ground. And so the criminal would carry his cross. And when he got to the vertical post, they would attach it to the, uh, to the horizontal one. And there they would be crucified. But here's the thing. They have, archaeologists have uncovered hundreds of these Roman vertical crosses, the posts, right? And almost all of them are between six and seven feet tall. And so if you account for these things being buried a foot in the ground, which they would have had to have been buried at least a foot in the ground, then the, the person being crucified would have been no more than, you know, six feet or so off the ground, like here, not up there, not 15 feet in the sky like we imagine. That, was, uh, that would be completely impractical. And the Romans crucified people practically in the most pragmatic way, the quickest way possible. They wanted these guys as close to the ground and as close to a busy street as they could get them so everybody could walk by and make fun of them and see them there hanging naked and bleeding to death. And so, erase what you thought you knew about what crucifixion looked like and imagine it this way. Jesus here at eye level as Mary stands in front of him. Do you see the picture of Mary? 47 years old or so, having poured her life out for her kids. Mary, who was no doubt begged by her other children to not go to the cross that day. And her friends told her, Mary, it's just going to be too much for you. We'll tell you what happens. We'll go and make sure it's okay. But look, you just stay home, Mary. But there was nothing that was going to keep Mary away from her little boy that day. Because Mary loved with an intensity a mother's intensity, and there was nothing that was going to keep her home that day. And so Mary stood in front of Jesus close enough to smell his blood, close enough to wipe his face, close enough to touch him and tell him that she loved him. Mary stood there with her baby. Can you imagine the memories that flooded her mind? Can you imagine the memories that flooded his Finally, Jesus speaks. It's almost physically impossible to speak from a cross, just the way you were crucified, the mechanics of it. It would block your air passages, and so it probably would have been something like a whisper. So Mary must have been close enough to hear. And Mary asks John, who's standing a little further away, to come closer. And so then we have John and Mary standing in front of the cross, looking Jesus in the eye, and Jesus says to Mary, this is your son, woman. This is your son, woman. And I can't read that verse anymore without thinking that Jesus must have winked at her or cracked a smile or just... He called her woman again for the second time in public just to get her to laugh, you know, in the midst of her grief or something like. It's the only other time he called her woman. <clears throat> this is your son now, woman. And John, this is your mom. Take care of my mother. And moments later, he was gone. And they buried him in a tomb. And then we Christians, we tend to think that Jesus just kind of took the day off. Like he died like everybody else died, right? Like, 
like he was crucified on Friday, it was a hard day, and so he just kind of died and slept in the tomb all day on Saturday, and then he rose again on Sunday. That's how we think of it. That is not the way the first Christians thought of the day between the crucifixion and the resurrection. The earliest Christians seem to be of uh, one mind about this. They seem to think that something had happened, something mysterious had happened. In fact, I still think it's one of the Bible's greatest mysteries. What happened between the crucifixion and the resurrection? You know the Apostles' Creed? If you ever go to like traditional worship services, they'll probably say something like the Apostles' Creed. It was one of the earliest uh, set of beliefs that Christians would say to each other. They usually said it before someone was baptized, and, and uh, Christians still say it today. But we don't say it quite the same way as they did way back in the day. Because some of the first manuscripts of the Apostles' Creed had this line. He was crucified, died, and was buried. We've got that part. And it says he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose from the dead. Turn, turn to your neighbor and say, what? Jesus, Jesus descended into hell, the earliest Christians, many of the earliest Christians believed. Now the image that this painted for them was that Jesus went to hell and faced the devil face to face and demanded the keys of hell and got the keys of hell from the devil. It's this wonderful image that artists have had all kinds of fun with. I can't help but think of it like in comedic terms, like Jesus knocks on the door and, and the devil like checks through the peephole and he's like, Jesus Christ. You know, like, like you know, like the place is a mess. I'm so embarrassed. Like, I, just, I don't know what else to do with that scene. It's just so like crazy to think about. And the truth is we don't know exactly what happened, but those closest to Jesus had some inclination that something happened. The people that knew Jesus, like Peter, nobody knew Jesus like Peter knew Jesus. And Peter, in his first letter, um, uh, said in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses uh, 18 through 20, he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the eyes in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Look at your neighbor and say, what? That is some crazy stuff. Did you know that's in the Bible? Jesus not only went to hell, not only got the keys to hell from Satan, but on his way out he had a parade of people behind him. Following him out of hell, people that had been there for centuries were freed and liberated after Jesus went to set them free. Now, here's my thing on this, and y'all know I'm a skeptic, right? And so I think about like, all right, what's really going on here? You know, I, this seems like folklore or something. But this is nowhere else in the, like, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to go to hell and free captives. Like, you know, this isn't like an Old Testament prophecy that the New Testament writers like had to fulfill or something. Like this is, this, this could only have come about if Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, told Peter that he did this. Like Peter could not have made this up. <laughs> Peter was just a fisherman, right? Like, he couldn't have come up with this on his own. It's too bizarre. It's too out there. And it's too early, frankly, in history. It's too close to the actual event to, in my mind, to have been a fabrication. I can only imagine Jesus sitting down, surrounded by his boys after the, his death and resurrection going, you guys will never, <laughs> you will never know. You will never understand like where I've been. Like you, you would not believe the things I've seen. And he tells them as best as he can, he explains to them what he's done for those who've been in captivity. Now, now, at this point, at this point, 
the one who's been hunted his whole life, he, he becomes the hunter. Jesus has been running around from one place to another, avoiding being caught. And at this point, the battle shifts, and Jesus takes the war to the enemy. Jesus takes the battle to his turf. And without any Pharisees around or anyone else to distract him, it's one-on-one. And when Jesus is done with the devil on his turf, he has a parade of people following him out. This, I don't think it could be more important, the idea that Jesus went to hell and back and led a parade of people out. That's, man, that's intensity. That's intense. You have to understand, you, you must know what this means. You must know what this means. That there is no hell you can find yourself in where Jesus won't go and find you. You must know what this means. That Jesus went and faced the devil and his minions to bring you close to God. To give those in darkness a chance. Those who've been in prison forever. An opportunity to find freedom again. Now, did everyone follow him out of hell? No, because it's still our choice to go and follow him. But he gives us the chance. No matter how desperate we are or how dark it is, he gives us the chance. There is no place his intense love won't take him for you, to rescue you, to bring you back. There's no mistake you can make that will put you out of his reach. And the people that were in hell that day found it out. And I pray that you can find it out too, that this can be day one. Day one of your new life. Day one of your life in freedom. Day one of your life post-slavery. And I pray that if yesterday people looked into your eyes and they saw somebody who was resigned to slavery, they saw somebody who was bound in chains, I pray that if yesterday someone looked into your eyes and saw somebody that had kind of given up and kind of was just coasting, today they'll look in your eyes and see something different. They'll see the intensity of Jesus. And everything will begin to change. Those chains that bound you for so long, they're going to immediately feel like this distant memory. The temptations that used to just hold you captive. Tomorrow you'll wake up and you'll be like, I can't believe I was ever even tempted. Your wife will look into your eyes and see a new man and she will love you even more. Your kids will know they can trust you. People that are vulnerable and weak and frail, they'll know they have a friend, someone they can trust in you. Darkness. And evil will cower in your presence because of the intensity of Jesus in your eyes. If you just say, yes, Jesus, I choose to follow you out of this slavery I'm in. I'll follow you out of this hell I'm in and I'll trust that you know the way. And then the craziest thing will happen. Your priorities will change, and you'll start to care a lot less about pleasure and a lot more about purpose. And you'll realize that pursuit of pleasure is what got you in hell in the first place. But the pursuit of purpose brings you more pleasure than you ever imagined. The pleasure of living with the intensity of Jesus. The pleasure of loving as Jesus loved you. That's freedom. That's joy, and that's why Jesus came. And the beginning of your new life is as simple as one yes, one yes. 
to Jesus. And if you've been running around thinking you're self-sufficient, thinking you don't need someone else to lead your life, just be honest for just one moment and say to yourself what that's gotten you. Jesus is here to lead you to a new life and a better life. Let's go to him in prayer right now.